This message was presented through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right. Well, before we begin this message, um, let's just bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your son Jesus. We thank you that you sent him to this earth for us to give us victory, uh, to give us eternal life. And we thank you that in Jesus we can freely receive that life. Not only life eternal, but we can receive the life here and now that is more abundant than we could ever have any other way. So we pray for your blessing to be upon us now as we talk about overcoming. In the name of Jesus, amen. Just a um, quick reminder, just because I can see several faces that I didn't see in the first seminar. We, we, this is a seminar on overcoming. It's called uh, The Hour of Victory. But this is a part of what I typically do as a seminar on overcoming habits. We do it for people within the church. We do it for secular people. Um, we do it for basically anybody who's looking to overcome. But the point being is this, is that God wants to give us the victory, but he doesn't ask us to find victory so that we can, you know, become a Christian. Do good, and then you get to go to heaven. That's not the biblical picture. We talked about, I went into detail, we won't do that, but the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is what? Death. And how many have sinned? All have sinned. So how many deserve to die? All deserve to die. How many good works do you have to do to, get in, to, to make up for the bad things you've done? There's no amount of good things you can do that make up for the bad. You understand? So you have to receive salvation as a free gift from Jesus. We, we find victory not to be saved, but rather because we, we have been saved. So uh, we're going into this message now. Just so my wife knows, I've added a little bit to this one. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to begin, and then you're going to come on. Um, now, I'm going to begin with... Here's the reality. We're going to talk more about, we're going to talk some about the brain, things that affect the brain. But if you don't have, meaning, I'm going to be real, if you're not having a living relationship with Jesus, all these facts, all these good and the bad for your brain, I mean, it's not going to so much matter. You'll have a better brain if you implement some of these things. But the reality is, is we want to have a relationship with Christ, a living relationship. And I'm going to be honest with you. When I used to study the Bible, I didn't enjoy it. I wasn't raised an Adventist. I'd never heard of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And I was going to college at the time. And I was happy with my life. I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, looking for something, but the Lord opened my eyes to the truth of his word. And in my mind, there was, I had no other option but to follow him. There was no other choice. I had to follow God. It was either I follow him or I don't. And if I do, I got to go wherever he says. And so I gave my life to him. And I had been reading the Bible some, but I didn't really enjoy so much reading the Bible. I'll be honest with you. But it wasn't until the Bible began to come alive to me that it, it changed my life. I love it. Now I, I love the scriptures. I love the spirit of prophecy. I didn't, I didn't believe in Ellen White in the beginning. I didn't even know who she was. I, I didn't know any of this stuff. But as I began to study, it totally changed my life. And it's been a blessing. My life is happier. It is more abundant. Jesus said that I want to give you life, and I want to give you life more abundantly. And I can say that is true in my own life. I'm going to give you a very quick uh, description of, for you who maybe your Bible reading isn't very interesting, this is not a seminar on Bible study, but I'm going to share it with you quickly, just to hopefully encourage some of you who maybe uh, don't have as lively of a study of God's Word as you could. Uh, but here's, here's a, I was studying the Bible some years ago, and I was reading in Joshua chapter 1 verse 8, and God said to Joshua, he said, this book of the law, 
probably referring to, you know, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But he said, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night. Then shall you make your way prosperous, and then shall you have good success. So the Bible says, if you want to have success in life, and I'm not talking about getting a lot of money in the bank or a nice car or a big house, but if you want to have spiritual success in your life, God said to Joshua, you need to meditate upon his word, how often? Day and night. You need to meditate day and night. So I looked up the word. I'm no Hebrew scholar, but I got a Strong's Concordance. You can look it up online or whatever. And I looked it up. Just what does that word meditate mean? And so now to the Hebrews, this word meditate was very rich. It was a deep word. We just think meditate, think, you know, or whatever. But nevertheless, looking up that word, in the Hebrew, the word is hagah, hagah. Now, the word has several different definitions, but they all kind of formulate around the idea of meditation. It's actually a word that's called in English, that most people in English wouldn't know what the word means, but it's an onomatopoeia. And that word basically means a word that makes the sound of the thing that it's talking about. Like if you throw a spoon against the wall, it goes boing. That's kind of the noise that it represents. The word, the word Hagah to the Hebrew was supposed to be the sound that someone made while they were meditating. Meditating makes noise. Well, seemingly to the Hebrews, they would think about it so much that they would begin to mutter it out of their mouth. That's what it was. The Hebrews would think so deeply, they would mutter as they were, as they were thinking about something. So they would think so much about it. And typically, Hebrews would memorize large portions of the Scripture. So they, they would think about it. So this word Hebrew, first of all, just simply means to meditate. So when you're reading the word of God, don't just do a simple, you know, overview. I mean, you can do an overview, that's okay, but dig deeper. But, you know, read. sometimes it's too much to even dig deeper. In the beginning, you may just need to just read it through. That's all you can do. But as you're, if you're finding it's just not enough for me, I've, just, I've been reading and it's not enough, really begin to meditate. Think about, okay, what does this mean? What is, how does this apply to my life? Yes. Yes, okay, okay, yes. My wife is saying to me that the muttering is not just like, Bleh. they weren't just making like a noise. They were literally, have you ever done that? You've thought so much about something that it begins to just come out of your mouth. Like you're actually speaking out loud. Now maybe you haven't, but I have. Maybe you're afraid to say it, but I have. I've actually done that. And so the Hebrews seem to do that. They'd be thinking so much about the text of scripture that it would begin to come out of their mouth. It was muttering. That's what the word one of the definitions of the word. So you got the idea. So they would be thinking so deeply. They don't just read over. Now there are times it's okay to just read over if that's all you can do, but to meditate, think deeply upon it. Number two, I added this one in because the Hebrews would do this. They would memorize scripture. And I do that in the first presentation I shared with you that I carry cards in my pocket because during times of temptation, during times of joy, during times of where I don't have anything going, I, I can pull the text out of, my, uh, out of my pocket and I can go over them because I I have them right on me. And so uh, it's, it's such a blessing that in times of temptation, when the devil comes in with a temptation, we can have a word from God to bring up and we can fill our mind with his word and we can pray about it and we can go over the text and it can change our lives. So I would encourage memorization. Uh, number three, this is an, uh, an actual definition of the word haga. It also means to imagine. 
I used to watch so much television as a young American that I had no imagination. So when I would read, it was like staring at a black and white piece of paper. So when I would read even the Bible, it was just like that. It was just like staring at words, and I could read them, sure, but it, it, was, it just wasn't very lively. But the Hebrews, the actual word to meditate upon God's word, one of the aspects of that meditation is to imagine what you're seeing. What would it have been like to be there? Sometimes that scares people in the church. Oh, we're not supposed to imagine things. I don't know, there's nothing wrong with imagining. You can read about it in the book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, the very first page. It says, imagine what it would have been like to be there with the disciples, sitting in the presence of Jesus upon the mount. Imagine what it would have, been, would have felt like to be in the presence of Jesus. And so if you actually imagine the scene, and, and now obviously don't make up things like, oh, I think there was a you know, bush over there. I mean, okay, imagine there's a bush, but don't be dogmatic about your imagination. You understand what I'm saying? But the point being, it, it will be more real if, if it's something that you've actually, you know, it's like you were there. So, so meditate, memorize, imagine. Another definition of the word haga is to study. So now you're looking at the passage and you're reading through the book of Acts and, and you come to this city called Iconium. Now, maybe you know about, a bunch about Iconium, but I didn't. So you look it up and you, you learn the history of a little bit of the history of Iconium. And now as you're reading about Paul going there, you have a better understanding of maybe the, the deities or the gods of that, that, that area or whatever it may be. And so now it begins to come to life to you. So putting some even study time in it makes it even more real to you as you're going through a passage of Scripture. And the last one is to talk. Another definition of the word Haggad, the word that means meditate, or is translated meditate in the Bible for us, is to talk. So now you've not only meditated on God's Word, you maybe even memorized something out of God's Word. You've imagined this thing that you're, you're looking at. You've studied some about it, but then you share what you've learned with someone else. These are five very, very simple things, but if you implement these things into your personal Bible study, it makes it more rich and more meaningful. So I would encourage you, if you already have a, you know, a way you personally study, praise the Lord, this is just a simple way, and it kind of spells the word, not, not accurately, M-M-I-S-T, mist. You know, it's a terrible rendering of a word, so it doesn't work. But the point being, you, it's easy to remember that way. So meditate, memorize, imagine, study, and talk. Simple thing. Now, this is not a seminar properly on Bible study, so we're not going into real, deal, real detail, but I do want to encourage you. If you want your spiritual life to grow, you have to be spending time in the Word of God. I wouldn't be here today if I did not continue to spend time in the Word of God. It's changed my life. I love the Bible now. I didn't, I didn't in the past. But God will, when you spend time looking at it, you will be changed. When you spend time beholding it, imagining, studying these things, and looking at your Savior... It transforms you from the inside. Now, I'm going to share with you a little bit about hypnotism. I learned how to hypnotize when I was, well, high school, actually. And I want to share with you immediately that I, from my own, I wasn't, wasn't an Adventist. I didn't know what I know today. Had I known what I know now, I would, never would have done it. But I, I realized very rapidly after learning to hypnotize that it is not something that is from God. We should never be shutting, the, and actually it helps shut down the frontal lobe. And the frontal lobe is the seat of spirituality, morality, and the will. So if you're shutting down the part of your body that is your moral aspect, your uh, spiritual aspect, that's probably not a good thing. And so I won't go into details about what happened, but nevertheless, what is hypnotism? Hypnotism, the hypnotized person loses beta waves from the brain. 
Now, beta waves are when you're actively thinking. You can maybe think of them as beta is better. They're better, okay? So these beta waves, it's when you're actively thinking, but you lose those when you are in a hypnotized state. Beta activity indicates sound thinking that involves dynamic frontal lobe activity. So it's basically shutting down that frontal lobe and allowing a lot of information to just pass through without frontal lobe filtering. Let's go on. In the hypnotized state, sorry, this isn't very easy to see. In the, in the hypnotized state, however, an alpha brain pattern is operative, during which we do not critically analyze incoming information. Alpha waves are brain waves of a lower frequency than beta waves. So you're not really cl critically analyzing what's happening. Now, in this, in this state, an individual records information and suggestions without interpretation and without frontal lobe filtering. So God has given us a filter. That information is always coming into your mind. Meaning, you see a billboard. The information's coming in. You hear suggestions. Information's coming in. But he's given us a filter right in the front of our brain, the frontal lobe, the seat of spirituality, morality, and the will that helps us decide how will I respond to these things that I am seeing and perceiving. But if we shut that down, we're just receiving the information. You can see the danger. Now, hypnotism attempts to cancel out frontal lobe functions and brings people into a trance in which they are highly suggestible. This is most easily accomplished by training the eyes to focus in on one's object. The best object being a little flickering light. The person will record information and duties without interpretation or without frontal lobe activity. Now, it says for hypnotism, one of the best ways to hypnotize people is with a little flickering light. Now, can you think of anything that many people might do that might, might bring them into somewhat of a hypnotic state? Can you? Television, right? Now, I want to be very clear before I go any further. What we're not saying is never, ever to watch TV. But the point is not to just nonstop, all the time, all the time be watching television. It literally, you will lose, your in you'll lose intelligence. It's a fact. It is not good for you. Now, uh, but not, not, it's not good to constantly be doing it. I'm not saying... Uh, you know, there are even religious programming, but I would even suggest not to constantly getting your religious meat of life from the television. Spend time reading the Bible for yourself. Spend time studying for yourself, not just getting everything from, you know, the two-dimensional screen. And there's several reasons for that. Um, what is possibly the greatest frontal lobe killer? And not that it would be, it's just that we've chosen to make it one of the greatest frontal lobe killers, at least in North America, because of the amount of time, I know we're in Europe, but in North America, how much time people put into watching television. So television is probably one of the greatest frontal lobe killers. Now this, check this out. Now we have, we're going to show more modern research, but this is 1979, 30, what, 32, 33 years ago. And think about this. You say, Chad, that's such old science. That's the point. The point is they understood that long ago, and we'll see that, yes, modern science also backs it up. Time Magazine said, an increasing number of studies suggest that the main danger of television may not be the message, but the medium itself, just looking at TV. In Bedford, Massachusetts, psychophysiologist Thomas Mulholland and Peter Crown, a professor of television and psychology at Hampshire College, have attached electrodes to the heads of children and adults as they watch TV. Mulholland thought that kids or children watching exciting television shows would show high attention. 
because it's exciting to watch it. To his surprise, the reverse proved true. While viewing television, the subject's output of alpha waves, remember the hypnotic waves, increased, indicating they were in a passive state. Notice what it's like. As if they were just sitting quietly in the dark. The implication, television may be a training course in the art of what? Inattention. Television, they, they began to notice in the 70s that television may be a training course in making you inattentive, not attentive. Now, can you think of a, I don't know, do you guys call it the same thing in, in Europe? Can you think of a disorder that many young people have that they struggle with? What is it called? ADD or attention deficit what? Disorder. Television happens to be a training course in the art of inattention. Now, have you ever seen a young man who has ADD and he says, you know, I just really struggle. I really struggle concentrating. And he says, you know, when I sit down to play a video game, I just can't pay attention to the video game. Have you ever heard that before? No, you'll never hear that, right? Because they don't struggle with that. They struggle with the simple things of life, but they don't struggle watching TV and they don't struggle playing video games. They don't have an attention deficit disorder. It's just that it's hard to pay attention to certain things in life. You follow? So it's that certain things are hard to pay attention to. Others we have no trouble with. You got me? And so this is the reality. We can, you can choose. Um, most of you don't have kids yet. How many of you have kids? Wow, several of you. But the rest of you, I'm talking to you. No, I'm talking to you too. But meaning you can choose if you, you, I'm not saying some kids might just have a, you know, disability. But you can actually choose pretty much whether your kid's going to have ADD by if you want to train them. You can train them. You can say, son, here's how you watch TV. I'm going to train you to be inattentive, right? Very simple. But the point being, if you do not have them constantly watching television, it is much less likely that they will have ADD. I would probably be diagnosed. I watched so much TV as a young person. I mean, just hours and hours and hours and hours. It was very hard for me to pay attention. But you can learn. You can break free from that, praise the Lord. You know, so let's go forward. Now, um, this, this is amazing. Another study published in the Journal of Pediatrics reported that for every one hour a day children watch television, there is a 10% increased chance of them being diagnosed with ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. This means that if the child watches five hours a day, she has a 50% chance of being diagnosed with ADHD. You got the point? So the more you watch, the more likely you are to be ADD. Now, television increases daydreaming, decreases creative ingenuity, decreases interest in reading, uh, decreases interest in learning, and reduces discernment. Now, it trains in non-reaction, meaning uh, we're getting to the point in society where somebody may see something terrible happening on the street, and, and you could put a stop to it. You could help end it, but people, because they're used to watching terrible things on TV, when they see it in person, they just, you know, just kind of watch and walk on by. People don't react to things that they should genuinely be reacting to. It also increases aggressiveness, reduces sensitivity to violence, it accelerates sexual activity in teens, and it is also addictive. Uh, it requires no physical activity. Uh, it, the average child, at, at least in the States, spends 26 hours a week watching television. They have little, there's little mental activity, it slows metabolism, People get heavier, and there's poor lifestyle habits as a result, obviously. Now, I'm going to tell you something fascinating. Now, once again, I'm not saying never to watch television. We actually make documentaries. That's, that's my, I make a living. I go around to archaeologists, theologians, scholars, historians, and I make documentaries about the Adventist message. 
You say, Chad, why do you do that if you know that TV can be dangerous watching? Well, number one, I don't even have a TV. I make documentaries for a living, and I don't even own a TV. Uh, and, I, yeah, I sit there in front of it, and, you know, working on them and, and making these documentaries because the reality is I know it would be better for people to sit, you know, give somebody a great controversy, but I know most people don't read today at least not in the States. And so they, they won't read what I give to them. And so we found that the documentaries that we produce are a very easy way to witness to people and people are open to it. And our goal is not that they will just continue to watch documentaries. Our goal is that it will get them into the Word of God and their lives will be changed. So yes, we can use these things that may not be the best thing in the world. We're not saying never to know. We're not being fanatical. You can never watch television. Don't ever look at it. It'll get you, you know? No, but don't, don't waste your life away. Don't waste your life away watching TV. You, follow, you, you understand, right? Does this make sense? So just not constantly doing it. Now, uh, let's see. Do I want to go into all this? It, they also show that um, the more TV you watch, the more depressed you are. Simple. I'm not going to read it all. Uh, too much TV means an earlier death from all things. They, they don't know why. Not just from the laziness, but from any disease. For some reason, the more television you watch makes you more likely to die earlier. I'm not going to go into all this stuff. It doesn't really matter. Um, I guess it does, or I probably wouldn't put it on there. But to give you an idea, this is fascinating. I just read a new study this past week. Um, a neuroscientist uh, was writing about the fact that they've done studies on, you know, how constant texting, you know, having your phone on. I got mine probably on my, me somewhere, you know. Maybe I'm, I guess I don't. But nevertheless, um, constant texting and constant checking emails They've actually found that people are constantly doing that, that it drops their IQ by 10 points. And did you know that if you smoke marijuana, it drops your IQ by four points? That's, that's what they discovered. So now, now, once again, you're saying, Chad said never to go, don't check your email. It'll make you dumb. No, listen. It's not that you can never check your email. I have to check my email. It's a reality. But what it is is that constant. Now, and I see it. I haven't seen it so much here. Praise the Lord. I haven't seen it in Austria. But in the United States, and I, I'm guessing you've seen it happen, you get a group of young people together. You'll have 12 young people in a circle, and they're all there. You know, they're, they're all hanging out with each other, and they're all sitting on their phones, right? I mean, it's like they, they're more interested in the fact that, like, they're looking on Facebook, and they're like, huh, Billy's eating a burger, Oh, like, listen, you're hanging out with your friends and all you care about is the fact that Billy's eating a burger. Like, who cares, right? But what happens is you're not choosing to be attentive to the situation that you are involved in. You see the danger. And so it's just, it's creating non-attention. Now, I'm not saying never check your Facebook, never do Actually, they found also that the more Facebook you spend time on, the more depressed you are. Now, once again, I'm not saying never do it. It's, it's that we need to live balanced lives. We need to be living life, not living on our phones. We need to be living life, not living through the television or through somebody else's life that we're reading about on Facebook. And we're like, oh, Billy's on vacation and I'm not, right? Look, not everybody, if you have 100 friends on there, somebody's probably on vacation and it makes you feel like you're, you're just not having fun in life. You get the point. The point is not that you can't do these things. Yes, we have Facebook. Yes, we have email. Um, and from time to time, we'll watch a little bit of TV. We don't own one, but from time to time, we'll watch something. But the point is don't live your life through these things. God has a plan for your life that is so much greater than just constantly seeing what other people are doing. God has such a better plan for your life than just staring at the television all the time. He has a plan and a purpose for your life, and his plan is so much better that you will be so much more fulfilled if that you'll actually just live the plan that he has for you. 
God has something for you in your life. Now, uh, Fadi is going to come up, my wife's going to come up, and she's going to go into the next section. Um, now, now we're getting back to more of what we would go into the second day. This is obviously, this is our first day, but the second day of our overcoming seminar. Uh, so we're just kind of now, we wouldn't normally just go into what I just went into, but this is a little added for you. He kind of improvised there. You know, I want to give one testimony since you went over the Haggah. I want to give one for that, and then I'll go into what I'm going to go into. Um, you know, he just gave you a little bit of how to study your Bible, the Haggah method. What, what were they? What was for the first M? Meditate, then. Memorize. Imagine. Study. And talk. Okay. Well, I'm going to do the talking part right now, and you'll get to hear the other. I'll give you a little testimony. How many of you have been in Pathfinders? Yep, I was a Pathfinder as well. Um, we were on a trip. I grew up in Chicago, and that's a concrete jungle, okay? Nowhere for a child to grow up. But anyway, that's where I grew up. And Pathfinders was like our escape because I got to leave the concrete jungle, and I got to go to the wilderness. We would go on exciting camping trips, and I loved it. Anyway, this one summer, we went up to Minnesota. It's north of us, and it it's called Boundary Waters, and the reason it's called Boundary Waters is because it's boundary with Canada. Beautiful area. We went canoeing there, and anyway, on our way down, we were coming back home. It was a big school bus filled with, with uh, children, and we stopped at one place for a rest area to go to the restroom, and I was having stomach problems. I must have eaten something bad. And I stayed a little long in the bathroom, came back out. I had to go back in. And by the time I came back out the second time, there was nobody there that I recognized. And I'm 12 years old at this time. I'm 12 years old. And I go out, I look everywhere, and I'm wondering, where is everyone? I run outside, and I look around, and there's no school bus. I look up on the highway, and there's the school bus on the road. So I start running. I book it. I start running as fast as I can. I jump over the barbed wire fence, and I try to get up, and it was too late. They were gone. But then I remembered there was a little car as well that was with us, and I don't remember seeing the little car on the highway. So I went back and looked around everywhere, all over for the little car, because I thought maybe they're playing a trick on me, because they said, you know, if you're late, we're going to leave you as a joke. So that joke was in my head, and I thought, well, maybe they didn't really leave me. Maybe they're just you know, no, nothing. So then I sat there, oh, come on. It's a busload of kids. They all know me. Somebody's going to recognize the fact that I'm gone. They'll be back in a few minutes. Well, a few minutes, a few more minutes, a little bit more hours. <laughs> and I'm like, no way. This whole school bus doesn't even recognize the fact that I'm not in there. And also the leaders don't recognize the fact that I'm not in there. Anyway, long story short, I start crying, start feeling sorry for myself because it's taking a lot longer than I had thought. And so then um, they finally get back. They pick me up. And they're like, where were you? What happened? And I'm like, ah, guess what? For those of you that are leaders of young people, that was the first time they did not do a head count. The whole trip, the first time. And that time made a difference, huh? Anyway. So now fast forward a number of years into the future. We're working back again in Chicago. Uh, we're doing some Bible work in the area. And we were learning some things um, about how to deal with people's personal problems 
and bring them through in a Bible study and so on and so forth, and how to work through their offenses that they've had as a child. Let's say somehow you've been offended in one way, and now ever after, whenever something similar to that happens, you overreact. Does that make sense? Because you've held on to that, and it's become a part of your character. So we were learning these things, and as we're talking and everything, Chad notices something one day, and he says to me, Fadia, this is before we were married, he says, Fadia, um, have you ever had a problem with being neglected as a child or anything? What? What are you talking about? No, really, really, think about it. I said, are you trying that stuff on me that we're <laughs> learning? And he's like, no, no, come on. He says, I'm your good friend. I know you well. Think about it. Really think. Like, whenever there's a situation where you feel left out, you get hurt. And, and you have, like, a problem with it. I said, oh, I don't know. So I go to my room. I start praying. I'm like, Lord, I didn't even know I had this. Like, I acted this way. You know, I didn't even realize it. But one of my best friends notices that about me. I, I need to look into this. And so I start praying. I'm like, Lord, there's no way I could scan my whole life and figure this out. You need to show me. And I'm pleading with the Lord, show me, show me. Finally, he points out to me that time, the Pathfinder trip, where I got left behind. It had affected me. Because I was only 12, and, you know, I thought, why did they forget me for so long? And I let it eat me up. So then ever after that, if I felt at all that you were not including me or you were forgetting about me, I would get deeply hurt. I was like, okay, Lord, so now you showed me the problem. And you showed me where it came from. How do I fix it? I didn't even know it was a problem. How on earth do I fix it? And as I was praying, the Lord reminded me, he's like, Fadia, what do you always tell people when you're studying the Bible with them and they have a problem that comes up? What do you always tell them? I said, I always tell them, look at the literal life of Jesus. Scan his life and see where the situation you have, you can relate to him. You can find something in his life that will bring peace to your heart. Well, I start scanning his life. Do you think I got very far? Do you think I got very far? How old was he? Where was he? In the temple. Who left him? Not a bunch of people from church, right? His own parents. And when they found him, what was he doing? He was about his father's business. Was he crying and feeling sorry for himself? Not at all. It gives me chills every time I mention this because the Lord took that burden off my shoulders and, and he said, I can relate to you. The word of God is alive and well and can deal with every situation that you have in life. And that, at that point, I realized Jesus was my savior even as a little boy. Even as a little boy, he was my savior. I brought that up because of what Chad was just sharing about the Haggah. Okay, the, the way to study your Bible, you have to make it real. You have to apply it to your life. It's not just about taking these Bible verses, putting them in your pocket, pulling it out in like a magic trick. It's not like that. It's actually thinking about these things and working through your problems with the Lord, praying to him through his word, looking at his life, looking at the whole of the Bible. So I just want to encourage you guys with that. So then 
now back to our um, overcoming seminar. So each night when people come back, we ask them, how did it go? Okay? And it's good to go over these things because some things are new for people and so they start to relate how it's going for them and then we can have some answers and it starts to encourage one another to hear how people are doing and it uplifts one another. And then we ask, were there any slip-ups? Well, that's kind of an unusual question, isn't it? But it's a good one because we're human, right? And we do slip up. But then we say to them, what can you learn from it, right? And then you start asking yourself the questions. Well, did I get enough sleep last night? Did I um, drink my water when I started feeling anxious? Did I get up and go for a walk? Did I claim any Bible promises? Was I in prayer? Did I do any deep breathing exercise, make sure there's enough oxygen coming to my brain? And you start analyzing these things and seeing, um, why, why did I feel like that? What have I been eating? What have I been doing? Did I get enough exercise? Do you see how you start to... Um, think on these things and see how I can improve it for the future. Why, why did I fall? Why did I slip up in that situation? Why did I get so anxious? And so you can learn from it. Um, I'll share this as well. Sorry, it's just because of time. I'll share a few things about exercise and how good it is for the brain. Exercise improves cognitive functioning in young people, old people, and everyone in between, says Dan Landers, Ph.D. This is in Runner's World, June 2006. Cognitive functioning refers to the mental processes and awareness, perception, reasoning, and judgment by which knowledge is acquired. So what it's pretty much saying is that when you exercise, your critical thinking and your cognitive functioning increases. So if you're in school and you feel like you don't have time for exercise, what do you think you should do? Exercise, right. Uh, the short-term effects of a bout of exercise lead one to focus and make fewer errors in decision-making. Wow. So you can make fewer errors in decision-making if you're doing what? Exercising. So where's the place that you make decisions? The frontal lobe. So this... Exercise is good for our frontal lobes. A number of studies in the extensive review found that during and or following a bout of vigorous exercise, typically running or cycling for 20 minutes to one hour, subjects' performances on tests measuring executive control, and what that means is the processes involved in achieving goals in a changing environment, improved significantly when compared with pre-exercise scores. A lot of times, our work areas where we work have um, continually changing environment, right? Stress has come to you, deadlines, whatever. It's saying that if you exercise, you're going to be better at making those types of decisions in a changing environment. So a lot of times, I, I share these things because I struggle with exercise myself, and I'm always reminded, and the Lord has blessed me with a husband that naturally loves to do it. Okay, and so we need to motivate ourselves with these things and realize my brain's going to improve if I exercise. I'm going to get the oxygen I need and all of that. All right, let us continue. We'll, we'll skip this stuff. What to do with discouragement? Okay, whenever you are changing um, your path in life, 
Satan's right there to try to get you off of it, right? Whether that's through a friend, whether that's through family, or whatever it may be, he'll come in and try to discourage you off the path. And discouragement affects us, um, even physically. Look at what Proverbs 17.22 says. This is very interesting. A merry heart does good like what? A medicine. But a broken spirit does what to the bones? Dries up the bones. What's in your bones? Did I hear it? Marrow? You know what marrow is? Your blood cells. Right. They're your blood cells. It's the beginning of you. It's, it's your baby blood cells. That's, that's where they're being made. And then they get distributed through the whole body. So the wise old Solomon said that if you have a broken heart, if you're discouraged and down, what does it do to your bones? It dries them up. And what's in there? Your blood cells. So do you think that those blood cells could get corrupted from your thoughts? Do you think, um, and this is just my reasoning, uh, do you think autoimmune diseases, the body attacking itself, who's telling it to attack itself? There's all kinds of studies. Um, if you guys want to look into some of this, uh, there's a book called Forgive to Live. Chad will bring it up in just a little bit. And um, what's the other one? I forget. But anyway, Forgive to Live, it talks about how a lack of forgiveness in our lives and having bitterness and anger actually affects us physically all these types of degenerative diseases because of that. So that's why in, in the Overcoming Seminar, we implement forgiveness and understanding how to forgive. And Chad's going to come up in a bit and show us how do we do that. So anyway, a merry heart, uh, excited and blessed and thanking the Lord for things is good like a medicine. All right, let me have you think about a lemon for a minute. How many of you like lemons? All right, you like lemons. Amen. Uh, <laughs> they're good, aren't they? They're just not so good for your teeth. They kind of hurt if you eat too many of them. Do you ever like to just like eat a lemon the way it is? Does anyone like to do that? Yeah, a few of you. How about lemonade? Yeah, yeah, lemonade is good. Um, what about, uh, have you ever heard of a lemon wrap? Anyone heard of a lemon wrap? No? You have to be part of a health institute to know about that. It's this thing that you wrap yourself around in lemon and baking soda, and it's supposed to drain. I've never done it, so I don't know. Anyway, I thought maybe somebody's heard of a lemon wrap. Um, well, I want you to stop thinking about lemons, okay? Stop thinking about lemons, those juicy fruits that grow in beautiful areas of the world and, and they're all luscious and when you, when you break it open and you smell the lemon and, and your mouth waters, do you, does your mouth water when you think about, don't think about lemons, guys. What's wrong with you? I asked you not to think about, don't think about lemons, okay? Don't think about lemons. What are your favorite apples? Huh? I can't hear you. Red Delicious? Green, like Granny Smith? Granny Smith with some peanut butter? Um, oh, no, I forgot. You guys aren't big on peanut butter like we are in the States. <laughs> What's that? 
Oh, you're big on Pinot. Are you from the UK? Oh, Netherlands. Okay. How about, how about, has anyone had honey crisp? Honey crisp, that is good stuff. If no one's ever had it, you need to try honey crisp. They are good, good apples. Um, how about apple pie? You guys like apple pie? Yeah. Excellent. So how many of you are thinking about lemons now? Did you see what I did? What did I do? When I kept telling you, stop thinking about lemons, could you stop thinking about lemons? No, I kept bringing up lemons, and I kept bringing up lemons. And it's difficult. When you keep bringing something up in your mind, it's difficult to stop thinking about it, right? Like we had one man tell us that when his, his fiancé broke up with him, it broke his heart, and somebody came up to him and said, you're never going to get over this. You're going to be thinking about it all the time. And he said, oh, no. Oh, no, every time the thought comes up in my head, I'm going to purposely think about something else. And he got over it. So it's the same thing. When temptations come up, what do we usually do? Oh, God, don't let me think about it. Don't let me think about it. No, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about it. Lord, please don't let me think about that. But instead, what should we be doing? Put our minds on things above, right? Not on things of this earth. And so you want to distract your mind. You want to look to the Word of God. Like Chad was saying, you take out that Bible verse, you start praying to Him, you think on those things, and you don't think about the lemons, right? You think about the apples and the, the precious things in life. So it's about learning how to, to, to control the will, and this is only by God's grace. We're not trying to do some mental gymnastics here or anything like that. We're looking for God's help, but we're learning how the brain works, right? Look at this in Ministry of Healing, page 246. This is very interesting. It says, The power of the will is not valued as it should be. Let the will be kept awake and rightly directed, and it will impart energy to the whole being and will be a wonderful aid in the maintenance of health. Do you hear that? The will Exercising the will will be a wonderful aid in, in maintenance of health. It is a power also in dealing with disease. Exercise in the right direction. It would control the imagination and be a potent means of resisting and overcoming disease of both body and mind. Isn't that powerful? Just from learning to exercise the will. You know, normally when we're doing this program and every day people are coming and every night we get to hear how they're doing, and some people are like, you know what? I didn't think I could do this fast thing that you asked me to do. I thought, they're crazy. I'm not, I'm not, I can't do this. And I did it, and I'm so surprised that I'm able to do it. When you decide on something and you're saying, okay, this week I'm going to do this fast, I'm going to stick to it, you're actually exercising your will. Does that make sense? You're exercising your will, you're putting your mind to something, you're determining you're going to do it, and that's strengthening your will. And then it makes you feel good. You're like, wow, I accomplished something and I feel good doing it. And that's what she's talking about. It actually gives health to the body when, you're, when you learn to exercise your will. Then some people start to think, oh man, this is just too much. You know, it's overwhelming. The discouragement comes in, right? Oh, I can't do this. The devil comes in. What does he tell you? You're a fake. Just stop trying. It's all the same thing over and over. Sure, you did this for a few weeks and you're feeling good about yourself. But look at you. You slipped up and you're doing the same thing you've always done. 
And he beats you up, he beats you up, and you believe him. But here's some encouraging thoughts. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. What price were we bought with? The blood of Christ. Look at this verse. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with what? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We were bought with the precious blood of Christ. And we're to remember that when we're struggling, when the devil comes in, you know what you do? You thank him. You're like, oh, thank you for reminding me that I'm a sinner and in need of a Savior. Thank you for reminding me that I need to turn to Christ. When I'm struggling, that's what I do. I turn to Jesus and I say, thank you, devil. I almost forgot that I was maybe not needing Jesus, right? But you turn to God and you say, thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. Because what we normally do is we look like the children of Israel What did they do when they got bitten by the serpents in the wilderness? What did they do? They they looked at the bites, didn't they? They looked at the bites. And what were they supposed to do? Looked up at what? What was on that pole? A serpent. Why was a serpent on the pole? In the New Testament, Jesus says, When he's talking about this story in the wilderness, he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He's that serpent, right? But why a serpent? Serpent is the devil, right? But then Jesus says, he became sin for us. So when I look at the cross, when I look at Jesus on the cross, I see my sin in light of the Savior. I see what my sin does to the Savior. But if I just look at my sin, is there any hope? No, there's no hope at looking at the bite of sin. But when I look at Jesus and I look at him up on the cross and I see my sin cause his suffering, my evil thoughts, my evil speaking, my evil ways cause his suffering, and that melts my heart. Does that make sense? And then I realize I'm in need of this Savior. And that's how we should look at things, not sit there and go over our sin and over it and over it and, and not look at the serpent on the, on the cross. I mean, the serpent, the brazen serpent. We have to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So when you're discouraged, the devil's beating you up, remember to look to Jesus. How many of you know the new start? Yeah? We got our own little uh, thing going. Let's see if you all can figure it out. You know how uh, N is for nutrition, E is exercise, W, water. All right, here, we've, here we go. You may not be able to figure out, but O, O for overcomer is open air, okay? V is victory in Jesus, Okay, V is victory in Jesus. What do you think E is? You got it, exercise. R? Rest, you got it, rest. 
Okay, now we get a we change it a little bit here for the C. We have control. That's our thing for temperance. Okay, control. But we added because we have an extra letter in overcomer. We added outlook. Remember, I was talking about having a positive outlook. Um, Mary Hart does good like a medicine. So O for outlook. And M is moisture instead of water. We just say moisture on the inside and on the outside. Okay? And E is eat nutritiously. And then the last R is radiant sun. So um, that's, that's our overcomer. And then Chad's going to come up and continue the thought on forgiveness. And just to let you know, I, we feel a little scattered because we're just trying to combine a bunch of stuff for you guys here. Yeah, you're getting kind of a conglomeration of the messages. Typically, typically it's more orderly. There's a purpose for all this. We just kind of threw some stuff together so that you could get at least a little more. And the, normally we do one hour. They give us like two hours here. So we're just kind of jamming some stuff together. But can anybody guess what the very first time... Uh, that forgiveness is mentioned. Not, not the concept is there, but the very first time the actual word is mentioned, forgive or forgiveness in Scripture. Any guess? I'm going to tell you. It was in the story of a young man who, come, who came from a, what do we call it? Not a broken home, but a dysfunctional family. Now think with me just for a moment. There was a young man, uh, his, his family, his brothers ended up selling him into what? Slavery. You remember that story? It was a young man who was sold into slavery. Now, let me ask you a question. Um, a lot of times we don't think about it in the Bible, but we don't think about um, people as having dysfunctional families. Now, uh, I'm not from Austria. I'm obviously from the States, and there are a whole lot of dysfunctional families in the States. But imagine with me for a moment. Did, was, was Joseph from a d dysfunctional family, yes or no? Would you say it's dysfunctional if your brother sold you into slavery? Yeah, that's a little dysfunctional, don't you think? Not only that, his brother was sleeping with a prostitute. And not only that, it, the prostitute happened to be his daughter-in-law. That's kind of dysfunctional, right? I mean, there's, there's a whole lot of dysfunction. To, uh, or, there, there's, there's problems in this family. So the guy, Joseph, ends up being taken off to Egypt. He's put into a, his master's house, his slave master's house, Potiphar. And uh, maybe, I don't know the story, but somehow, the Bible actually tells us that she tried to tempt him multiple times. It actually says it. It's not as if just one day she's like, why don't you lie with me? I mean, she literally was pressing the guy. Imagine a guy who may never get to have a wife in his whole life, and he has some woman who wants to be with him. Can you imagine the temptation for Joseph? And she's repeatedly coming to him and, and, and trying to get him to lie with her, as the King James says. And so think about this. In this situation, then she wants to sleep with him. She grabs hold of him, and he chooses to back off. And as he backs off, she grabs his cloak or whatever and runs off, and she screams, rape. Well, what are they going to do? Who are you going to believe? You're going to believe the slave or the slave master's wife, obviously. So they throw him into what? They throw him into prison. Now, while he's in prison, do we have the perspective that Joseph was continually, he was sitting there and he's like, man, my brothers threw me in here and then, and then I didn't do anything wrong and, and my slave master's wife lied about me and, and all he did was sit in prison and he complained, right? Is that the picture we have of Joseph in prison? No. 
Instead, we have a picture of Joseph in prison trying to help other people. The very first time forgiveness is mentioned in the scripture is in the context of a dysfunctional family who abused this son. And as a result, instead of going on with his life angry and, and bitter and holding on to it the rest of his life, Joseph, the very first time forgiveness is mentioned is when Joseph forgave his brothers. Now, did they deserve forgiveness? No. But out of the love of a brother, he forgave. Now, this is awesome. Uh, in the Greek, the word to forgive is afiema. In this word, this word forgive, it means to send, send forth, lay aside, or let go. So forgive means to let go. Now, we've had people we've worked with in our seminars where I, I, I remember a couple times. You know, I remember a lady... Uh, I was sharing a seminar in the United States, and this woman, she shared with me, she said, oh, yeah, these people, uh, they were in our church, and, and they said this to me, you know, and they said this, and, and the next time I saw her, uh, she told me the exact same story. These people, they were so mean to me, they did this to me, and, and they did this, and, 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 I, and I thought, well, maybe she forgot that she told me last time I saw her. And then the next time, literally, I'm not kidding, the next, the third time I saw her, the third time I met her, she told me the same story again. And the very next time, the fourth time, I am not kidding, every single time I met this woman, she told me the same story. Another lady I met, she told me, she said, uh, she began to share with me what her family had done to her. She said, my family did this to me, and they did this to me, and they did this to me, and they did this. And, um, and I began to speak to her about forgiveness. And she said, oh, I've forgiven them. And they did this to me, and they did this to me, and they did this to me. Now, according to the definition of forgive, had the lady forgiven, yes or no? Because that's all she could think about. Now, what, what part of the equation did she not do? What, what part of forgiveness did she not do? She didn't let go. She was still holding on to it. It was controlling her life day in and day out. Uh, the first lady, I found out it had been like 40 years since these people in church had said something mean to her. And that's all she could think about every single day of her life. The fact that someone was mean to her 40 years ago. Her whole life was destroyed by constantly thinking about these negative things someone had said to her. Now, is that a life of freedom, yes or no? That's a nightmare. It is a literal nightmare. Well, the reality is, is God is calling us to forgive. We already mentioned the first time forgiveness is mentioned in the Bible. I want you to notice this quote with me from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. It says, The one thing essential for us in order that we may receive and impart the forgiving love of God is to know and believe the love that he has to us. You may be saying, Chad, why in a seminar on finding victory, why in a seminar on overcoming habits would you talk about forgiveness? The reason is this. What we've discovered and we believe is that many people, I'm not saying that it's always the case, but many times people are struggling with addictions, they're struggling with bad habits, and the reason they are is because they're holding on to uh, some anger problems. They're holding on somebody's hurt me somebody has done this to me and so as a result they are not able to overcome because they are living in the pain of the past and God wants to give them victory he wants to give you he wants to give us all victory now have you ever felt guilty have you ever felt really guilty now I'm guessing at all point one you know at some point in our life we felt really guilty for our sin obviously now do you think Jesus ever felt guilty yes or no some think no, some think yes. Think about this. Now, he never felt guilty for his own sin, did he? Because he never committed any. But Jesus, as he was going into Gethsemane, as he was making his way to the cross, did he feel guilty, yes or no? You know what's interesting? You, uh, for instance, like, have you ever, you know, you, know, you remember, our, uh, do you remember the President Bill Clinton back in the States? 
Bill Clinton had this famous saying. Someone would share some story and he'd say, I feel your pain. I feel your pain. Now, let me, let me ask you, did Bill Clinton really feel their pain? No. Now, what it means is, oh, you're saying, like, I, can, I know what you mean, you know, I, I, can, I, can, I, I understand that. But do you know that human beings can never, ever feel another person's pain? You know that? I, like, I mean, if you slam a, a hammer on your toe, I can't feel that. I might be like, ooh, that hurt, you know, I can, I can feel it like that, but I can't actually feel the pain. But think about this. I can't feel your guilt. But Jesus, when he went to the cross, the Bible says, it says that he bore our sins and carried our sorrows. I can never feel your pain. One human being can only feel the pain of one human being. Jesus, as he went to the cross, felt all of your guilt, not just one of the times you were guilty, but your guilt came upon Jesus as he was making his way to the cross. But not only your guilt, my, my guilt was placed upon him too. And everybody in this room, and the sins of humanity, even those who will never accept him as their personal savior, everyone could have their sins forgiven because all of their sins were placed upon Jesus on the cross and collectively he felt all the pain of humanity. And he died on the cross, not from the wounds, you know, the the nails in his hands, not from the nail piercing his feet, not from the sword thrust in his side. The Bible says, even in the book of Psalms, it says, my heart hath been broken, it says it. The spirit of prophecy says that the Bible prophesied that his heart would be broken. Jesus' heart, he died, and actually there's, there's a legitimate way of dying. In one of our documentaries we talk about that, where um, a, a cardiologist, a heart doctor, talks about a disease called Takotsubo syndrome. And this syndrome, when someone is so depressed, when they have so many difficulties, that their heart literally can break. It's called broken heart syndrome. And your heart, you literally die and you have clean arteries. But your heart dies because the pain is so tremendous of the emotional difficulties you're dealing with. The Bible reveals that Jesus died for our sins. He knows what it's like to feel guilty. Jesus took your sin to the cross. He was willing to. He gave himself for us on the cross. So you feel guilty, I feel guilty, but we need to understand the forgiveness that God says no matter what you've done. There's no sin you've committed that Jesus didn't take to the cross. Every sin you've committed. So if you have sin and you feel guilty, Jesus has already taken it. If you will receive it by faith, you can receive forgiveness from the Savior. But sometimes we think, well, maybe God won't forgive because we think like Psalms 50 verse 21 says, you thought that I was one like yourself. We think maybe God's just like me. I'm not very forgiving, so maybe God isn't forgiving. But the reality is, is you may not have been forgiving, but God is willing to forgive you. But he does call you to forgive also, and we'll talk about that. Now, sometimes uh, when, when people, I, I, I read a story about a, uh, two prisoners of war. I, I'm fascinated about stories about prisoners of war and these kind of things and escaping from concentration camps. Or whatever. That, those stories fascinate me. But I read about two, two former prisoners in Vietnam. They'd come out of the Vietnam War. And, and these, one of the prisoners said to the other prisoners, he said, have you forgiven your captors yet? And the other one responded by saying, he said, no, I will never forgive them. And the other responded by saying, then I guess they still have you captive, don't they? When we do not forgive, we are in captivity. We're not free. The question we're asking right now, is it the weak or the strong who forgive? 
This is from Testimonies for the Church. It says, the strongest man is he who, while sensitive to abuse, that means he feels pain when people are mean to him. But the strongest man is the one who feels pain when people are being mean to him, will yet restrain his passion, and he will forgive his enemies. Such men are true heroes. So is it the weak or the strong who, are, who forgive? It's the strong. Who is the strongest person in the universe? Who's the strongest person in the universe? God. Is God willing to forgive, yes or no? So it is obviously a characteristic of strength to be willing to forgive. We move on. I read the story of about a man, another man, who was actually taken to a Nazi concentration camp. His name was Wild Bill. You think of Wild Bill, you know, Buffalo Bill Cody or whatever back in the United States. I'm not talking about that. This is a man who is, he, uh, one day, the Nazi soldiers came to his house. And as they came to his house, they pulled out his entire family one by one. And they started at his youngest child and they shot the child right in front of him. Then they went to the next oldest, the next oldest. They went to his wife and they shot her. And they got to the next man. And when they came to this individual, Bill, they, he began to speak to them and he spoke perfect German. And they said, oh, he speaks German so well. And they, or something along these lines. And they said, why don't we just throw him in the concentration camp? We can use him in there. So while he was thrown into the concentration camp, what ended up happening was he was always working hard, he was always diligent, he always seems positive, and the other, the other people, the other prisoners looked at him all the time, they're like, what's the deal with Bill? Obviously, Bill hasn't been in here as long as we all have. And so, uh, they, finally somebody came in there and they asked him, what, what's, what's the difference between you and all of us? I mean, we can see there's something different, and he said... And, and they had said to each other, surely he hasn't been on this starvation ration diet as long as the rest of us. And they discovered that actually Bill was, and he shared his story. He said, you see, before coming into this concentration camp, he said, I was a lawyer by profession. And he said, as a lawyer, I have seen what anger and animosity and lack of forgiveness can do to an individual. And he said, when they, when they executed my family in front of me, he said, I knew I had to make a decision. He said, I knew I had to make a choice. I had to make a choice whether I would forgive or whether I would be angry. And he said, for me, the decision was very simple. I knew that I had to forgive because I have seen that forgiveness destroys people. And he was able to go on with his life and press forward even in a concentration camp because God gave him the divine ability to forgive even while people were still persecuting him. And friends, God, even if someone's still being mean to you, God can still give you the, the love in your heart to press forward, to, to find somehow in your, in your heart from God, not in your heart, but find it from God to forgive. Mark chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, Jesus said, and when, you, when you're praying, you need, you need to forgive. If you have anything against another, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. He says, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Jesus said that if you want to be forgiven, you have to, have to what? Forgive. If you are going to be forgiven, you have to forgive the person or people who have hurt you. Now, is Jesus doing that just to be mean? If you don't do it, I'm not going to do it for you. Jesus in love knows that if you're choosing to hold on to anger, he knows you're destroying your life. He knows you are absolutely destroying your life. And so in love, he is asking you to forgive. He's commanding it even. And he will give you the strength. We're going to talk about how to forgive in just a moment.
Now, this is another powerful quote. We are to have a spirit of compassion toward those who have trespassed against us. Whether or not they confess their faults, however sorely they may have wounded us, we are not to cherish our grievances. Cherish our grievances. What does that mean? Well, I looked up the word cherish just in the dictionary, and the word cherish means to protect and care for lovingly. We are not to protect and care for lovingly that little story about what the person did to us. Meaning, meaning, this person hurt me. They did this to me, and they did this to me, and they did this to me. Uh, now, when, when I bring that up every day, all the time, all the time, all the time, it, it's kind of like I protect and I love that story because it maybe makes you feel bad for me. Right? But God, God is saying, listen, do not, don't protect and hold on to that story. Let it go. Let go of what has happened so that you don't have to carry that baggage for the rest of your life. It says, we are not to cherish our grievances and sympathize with ourselves over our injuries, but as we hope to be pardoned for our offenses against God, we are to pardon all who have done evil to us. I'm going to give you a personal experience in my own life about my own forgiveness, and I only share this story as an example of how the Lord can change me, not because it brings pain to my heart anymore. This was fully my fault. This is different than if somebody was abused or molested or raped. This is totally different. I was a punk. I was a jerk. I was a very mean and angry person back when I was unconverted, when I wasn't an Adventist, and I remember I was on the street one time, and I I didn't live in the best area, but for no good reason, I started a kind of a brawl with a couple guys, and these, these guys... I was yelling at them, they were yelling at me, and, and I, I punched one of the guys, and these guys beat the living tar out of me. They beat me to the ground, and then they, uh, I mean, they just beat me and beat me. I couldn't get up, and I have this thing whenever I get hit in the head hard enough, um, praise the Lord, I don't get hit much anymore, praise the Lord, but uh, not that I got hit all that much back then, but the point being, so uh, if I get hit in the head hard enough, I hear glass shatter. And then I'm like half conscious for a little bit, and I had contacts at the time, but the only, because I was half conscious and I'd get hit and I'd hear, and I'd think, where are my glasses? Where are my glasses? And I, this just happened over, and it was like this, it was like a nightmare of, you know, like the same thing happening over and over and over again. Well, when I used to think it, finally I got a hold of one of the guy's legs, it was pathetic. It was absolutely, and I'm still yelling at them as they're finally leaving me. But the point being this, when I used to think about that, I would lie in bed at night, and it would raise anger in my heart. I would think about how I could have done something different. Like, really, I just shouldn't have thrown the first punch, and it probably never would have happened. But the point being, I I would think about it, and it would make me angry to think about this. Now, now I think about it, like meaning right now. Actually, I never think about it unless I'm sharing it for a testimony. Now that I think about it, it's the same for me to share about it as I feel about the same as if I were talking about the weather. Have I forgot that it happened, yes or no? No, obviously, I just told you the story. But what happened? Now I have, my my wife calls it emotional amnesia. So the anger that was associated is not there anymore. God gives peace. He gives forgiveness. And when I came to him, he helped me forgive. You are not going to forget what people did to you. The whole forgetting and forgive and forget, that's not true. You can't forgive and forget, but you can forgive and not constantly go over it and over it and over it. You can forgive and constantly not tell the story to look for pity in other people's minds. You can forgive and find peace in your own heart that even if the thought comes up in your head, you still have peace and you can even pray for that individual. Now, 
Uh, I won't go over it. Basically, it's, there's a quote there that says we shouldn't, we shouldn't constantly be, be telling people the sad story of what happened to us. But now we're going to talk about how to forgive. But before we talk about how to forgive, we're going to talk about what forgiveness is not. Now, to begin with, forgiveness is not based on finding some redeeming quality that makes a person worth forgiving. Now, uh, to, to, to try to illustrate what that means, imagine a young lady is going for a jog down the road, and some young man is attracted to her, he grabs her, he rapes her, and he leaves her, and she never sees him again. Now, that's a terrible, terrible thing. And God wants us to forgive all those who have trespassed against us, but can she think of some good things about that guy? Does she have any good, does she know any good things about the rapist? No. She didn't know the guy. She's never seen him again. All she knows is a bad thing about that guy. And yet, God can still give her the ability to forgive. Uh, Number two, Forgiveness does not require that a person minimize the validity of his pain, the amount of pain he suffered, or the importance of a painful experience. Now, the next one is kind of similar. It says to forgive does not mean saying this did not matter or that wasn't a huge wrong committed against me. Now, sometimes uh, when we forgive, somebody may come to you, you, like if I was really mean to you and I come and I say, I'm, I'm truly sorry for saying that. I never should have said that to you. And sometimes we respond, I don't know how it is in you know, German or French or you know, Icelandic or whatever, but in English, when someone sometimes apologizes, we use these words, we say, that's okay. Now, is it really okay? Like, oh, no big deal. <laughs> it was okay. No. Right? It's not okay. But what we can say is, you are forgiven. You see the difference? To say you're, that's okay means it was actually, there was no problem. That was actually okay that you did that to me. But to say for, I forgive is saying, you're right, that wasn't right, but I do forgive you for what you've done to me. Now, uh, also, to, forgiveness does not mean letting a person off the hook so that no justice is required. Meaning somebody, if they have done some terrible thing, molested your child, that person may have to go to jail. And they deserve to go to jail. And you can forgive them, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't be punished for what they have done. You follow? People can still receive the punishment, yet still be forgiven. And also, like I said earlier, for, forgiveness is not forgive and forget but it means we don't have to constantly go over it in our head. And also, forgiveness does not take two people. It doesn't take two people to forgive. Meaning, uh, you, you may have done something wrong to somebody else, and you go to them and you say, I'm sorry for what I've done to you. Now, if they, if they say, no, I'm not going to accept that. Well, you, you know, you've done your best. Or somebody may have hurt you, and they may not even be asking for forgiveness. Or they act like they didn't do anything. But the reality is you can still forgive by God's grace even if they act like nothing happened. You know the sexual abusers, sexual molesters, many times will try to make the individual, a child who's been sexually abused, they will try to make the child think that it's their fault. You wanted to do this. This this is all your fault. You, You know, you liked it or whatever. And the poor child in the confusion of feelings and all these sensations doesn't know what to think. And they think they're guilty. But the reality is, is, you know, even though forgiveness does not take two people, if somebody's abused you, that's not your fault. We're not talking about that. That is truly not your fault, even if the abuser tried to make you think that. But the reality is, is you can forgive by God's grace regardless of what has happened. 
Now, reconciliation takes two people, but you can't, some people won't be reconciled with. So you may ask for forgiveness, but they won't be reconciled with. So now we're asking the question, how do we forgive? How do we legitimately forgive? I didn't even realize that I had a problem for forgiveness, but the Lord finally showed me that I did have an issue, that I wasn't forgiving somebody. And he finally, he showed me as I was looking into this issue of forgiveness. But number one, how do we forgive? Number one, you have to admit. Admit that you have been hurt. Admit that you have, you know, felt some pain as a result of this. Don't lie and act like, oh, it's no big deal, it's okay. No, that really genuinely hurt. Um, Now, don't deny that you've experienced mental or physical or emotional pain as a result. Number two, accept God's personal forgiveness in your own life. Accept that God, God, I know that you're willing to forgive me for all of my sin. I know that you are willing, Father. And number, and also... Here, jump ahead. Oh, yeah, no, that, that last one just said, if you had any fault in the matter, confess your fault. Meaning if, let's say, let's just say, for instance, you know, some young man here, uh, he and I are just arguing with each other. We're angry and they, we, ah, we get angry with each other and he yells at me and I yell at him or whatever. Now, if, if he comes and apologizes or whatever, I, I need to apologize myself. If I had any fault in the matter, confess your sin. If, if I did, now if you legitimately did, So the Bible says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Number four, we need to ask the Lord to help you forgive and release the negative emotions. Ask the Lord to release the the negative emotions. Now, God can give us victory. He can take away the pain. And that's what God wants to do. Not, Not just make you forget it like it never happened, but God wants to take away the pain that's associated with that memory of what has happened to you. And number five, we also want to learn to forgive self. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we need to be willing to forgive. So I would, I would just encourage you, if you've, if you've struggled, if someone has hurt you, God wants to take away that pain. He wants to help you change and he wants to help you to overcome any addiction that you may be having. Now, remember, Jesus already took your sin to the cross. Now, you're not going to totally forget, but Paul talks about forgetting. He says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, he says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. He said, I press toward the mark of, for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You say, Paul said he forgot. He was forgetting the past. Now, did Paul forget what happened to him in the past? You say, well, he says he did. But did he really forget what happened? Do you remember, was Paul ever beaten, yes or no? Was, was he ever stoned, yes or no? How do you know? Because he wrote about it, right? Paul wrote about it. He remembered it and he wrote about it. Yeah, I was, I was beaten and I was stoned and I was shipwrecked and, and this happened to me and this happened to me. And now, but was Paul doing that so we would all feel like, oh, poor Paul? He's saying, no, Jesus gave me the strength to press forward. He's giving a testimony of what happened in his life for the Lord. So Paul didn't literally forget, but he was letting go of the things of the past and he was pressing forward. He was pressing forward. Jesus can help you to press forward. Jesus can give you the victory. And maybe there's something God's calling you to, to you know, truly forgive so that you can move on in life. My wife is going to share with us a personal testimony in closing. This will be the last thing. She's going to share a personal testimony of forgiveness in her own life. Oh, should I do it? What time is it?
How much no, time? Do, I think that's about it, huh? How many, half an hour left? Still five. Still five? Yeah. And it's four? Yeah. Whoa, okay, let me tell you a story. <laughs> Sorry. All right, all right. This is, is Teeny Finley in here right now? She was a minute ago. She's, there she is. Sister Finley, I'm sharing a story from your husband right now. I love this story. This is such a powerful story. Uh, Elder Finley tells a story. I heard this story. And so I, it's, just, it's the most awesome story of forgiveness I've ever heard. He tells the story of being in Rwanda. Uh, I don't know how old you all are, but do any of you remember the, the genocide that took place? What was it in the 90s, 94, something like that? It, there was a terrible, terrible genocide that took place in Rwanda. And uh, I, I know there's at least one young man here from Rwanda. I know him, I know him personally, but, but there may be more. I don't know. But nevertheless, uh, this, this particular woman, she was an Adventist pastor's wife. And she was standing next to her husband as the Hutus were coming in to kill the Tutsis. You, you know, the, basically what happened over the course of about 100 days, uh, the Hutus took machetes and they hacked these people to death with machetes. I mean, just chopped them down, uh, blo- you know, bodies lining the streets, blood flowing in the streets. And what ended up happening was this. As... Uh, as this, this young man comes into the room, and these people come into the room, this, this Adventist pastor's wife is standing there, and her husband is standing beside her, and the young men run up to her husband, and they begin to hack him with their machetes. And they literally, he falls to the ground dead. And then, as they finish with him, they begin on her, and they begin to just hack her with their machetes. And so she's being cut, she's being cut left and right, and finally she drops to the ground in a pool of her own blood. And she's totally knocked out. They left her for dead. Three days later, she somehow revives. She comes back, and obviously through a process of time, she, she heals. This woman is healed, and, and somehow, some way, many of these people, the Hutus, were cast into prison as a result of the you know, atrocities they had committed. And being cast into prison, what ended up happening was they, they, you know, there would be people who would go to them, and this woman who had been hacked almost to death, this Adventist minister's wife, she went into the prison and she would give, begin to give Bible studies to these people who had committed these terrible sins. And so she was giving Bible studies to the people who were killing her people. And one particular day while she's in the prison, she walks into the prison and this young man begins to walk, walk forward toward her and her eyes and his eyes, they both met. And as they looked at each other, both of them knew exactly who the other was. The woman knew and she knew that this young man was the young man who had hacked her seemingly to death. And he knew the very same thing. He knew that this is the woman, this is one of the women that I almost killed. And as he saw her, he dropped to his knees and he began to beg for forgiveness. Now, what would you do? This young, murdered your, this young man murdered your husband and he tried to murder you. This woman, this Adventist minister's wife, she forgave the young man. But not only that, she began to give him Bible studies. This young man gave his life to Jesus. And the day came where he was actually let out of prison. And when he came out of prison, she adopted him as her son. This woman adopted the murderer of her husband and almost the murder of her as her own son. Can you imagine? 
Every time, I mean, you're looking at your son and this, this is the guy who killed your husband. Now think about this with me for just a moment. Imagine, imagine a father who has a son and, and, and you're the one guilty for his death. Could you imagine that? You have, there was a, the father sent his son to planet earth. As he came to planet earth, your sin and my sin was pressed upon the shoulders of Jesus. Jesus died for our sins. And what the Bible actually says, Paul talks about the fact that God, what does he want to do with us? He wants to adopt us as sons and daughters. The people who are guilty of the death of his dear son. Is God willing to forgive us, yes or no? God is more willing than anything to forgive you if you will come to him and ask for forgiveness. God is willing to forgive. My wife is going to come up now and she's going to share a testimony about forgiveness in her own life. Thank you. That story always touches my heart. And I'm sure, Mrs. Finley, there's more details than that, but that's what we remember. (laughs) Oh, and just to let you know, uh, Pastor Finley actually was in the home of this woman, and, and he met her and heard the story, and then the son walks in, and he got to meet him as well. So maybe you could hear the full story on audio verse or something like that sometime. I'm not sure. We heard it in Chicago. He was in Chicago at one point, but I'm sure it's online somewhere. Um, like I told you, I grew up in the church, and uh, I went to Kettering College. That's in Ohio. And while I was there, very busy, involved in all kinds of activities, you know how the college life goes. And um, I remember being in exercise class one day, and the chaplain had come in. It was like I could see him in the corner, and I was just exercising, and, and he came in slowly, and he keeps walking around, and he's waiting. Finally, he comes up to me and says, I'd like to talk to you when you get a chance. And I was like, okay. And he just looked very serious, so I didn't know what what it was about. And um, I said, all right, when I get a chance, I'll come by there. And so finally I made my way to his office, and I come in, and I'm like talking, talking, talking. And and, uh, he just has this heavy look on his face, and it's bothering me. And so I just keep talking because I don't really want to know what he has to tell me. And so um, finally I stopped talking, and he said, are you done? And I said, yeah. And he said, we got a call today. And he comes up real close with his chair, and he just has a heavy look on his face. He says, we, we got a call today from your home. And I said, oh, no, no, is it my mom? Is it my dad? Who is it? And he said, it, it was from the armed services. And um, when I heard that, I just lost it. I just totally lost it, started to cry. Um, my older brother was in the military, and... Um, if you get a call from the military, it's not to tell you your son's doing a good job. Uh, it's it. They're done. And so I knew. But I kept looking at him to tell me, Fadia, you're overreacting. You need to calm down. It's going to be okay. No, he wouldn't tell me that. And I just, I absolutely just lost it and crying. And um, then he tells me, you're the first to hear about it. He said, um, your family's not home yet. And the military has to be the ones to come. They got the, the local pastor and the principal. We were living on a campus at the time in, in um, Broadview Academy. It's an academy in Illinois. It was. 
And so I'm just sitting there for hours. I can't call my family and, and say anything to them. And then we're just, I'm just sitting there for hours and just imagining, like, what my younger brother's going to do, what my dad's going to do, what my mom's. And I'm thinking, who's going to answer the door? You know, because when you answer the door, who are you going to see? The guy in the military suit. And, and I'm just for hours thinking about this. And um, every so often I'd go out in, into the lobby. I, I'd uh, walk out there and go to the bathroom, and then I'd come back into his office. And my friends sometimes would be wandering around there, and then I'd come in and out, and I'd try to wipe off all the tears because it was finals. It was, uh, you know, midterms. We have to do tests and everything. And so I didn't want to bother anybody with the news so that they can concentrate on studying. So I'd come in and out, and every once in a while some friend would tell a joke or something, and i think, oh, you know, like if they only knew, like, what was happening. And then I'd go back in there and cry some more, and then I'd go back to the bathroom. And then one friend, he comes by, and he says to me, he says, Vadia, I got a job. I got a job. Oh, great, you finally got a job, you know, and a part-time job during school. And uh, he says, but the sad news, and he's, like, down, and he puts his head on my shoulder, and he's like, I have to cut my hair. And his hair was like down here. And uh, at the time, I'm just sitting there like, Lord, my brother's dead. And this dude is thinking about his hair. You know, I'm just like going crazy inside. But of course, I don't say anything about it. I'm just like, oh, okay. And then the thought hit me. Moments before I found out about my brother, I would have been right there with him, comforting him about his ridiculous hair. And I thought... Lord, I'm so vain. Like, life is so vain. You, you can't imagine how reality hits when something that heavy hits you. Um, like, you just see everything through different eyes. Remember last night with uh, the sunglasses? You know, we see, we see the world through sunglasses, or we take them off and we see reality. It's like the sunglasses were pulled off, and I just saw everything the way it really is, and I was like, oh, and I saw myself, and I didn't like it. So I didn't find out all the details. I knew that my uh, brother was killed in a head-on car accident, head-on collision, and he died immediately. Um, he was married for two days, and um, his wife was driving, and uh, he was sleeping, actually, and he, um, he was a big guy. He wasn't small like me. He was a lot bigger. And um, it was immediate head, head injury. So I got home the next day. I flew out, and we found out more details from the military. They came and told us more information. And they said the driver of the other vehicle was a drunk driver. When I heard that, Oh, this anger just welled up in me, and I just got so angry, I can't explain it to you. And I thought, oh, what a waste of life. And and because, um, you know, if your brother's in the military, what do you, how do you think he's going to die, possibly? Doing something, whatever military people do. Um, and so... It was just a shock, you know, like some domestic things right in the U.S. itself. He got killed right there, and, and um, I, I was just like totally torn up. So 
this anger comes in, but guess what? Immediately I thought, what, what do um, Christians do? They forgive and forget, right? That's just what we're supposed to do. You're supposed to forgive and forget. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to do. I shouldn't be angry at this guy. And then I tried to think of good things about him. I thought, well, maybe he's just a teenager and he didn't know any better. You know, I tried to think of good things. You know, like Chad was saying, you don't have to find a redeeming quality in the person to forgive him. But that's what I was trying to do. But then we found out he was a 45-year-old man. He had a concealed weapon in the car. He had open liquor, drugs, $10,000 cash, all kinds of things. And uh, I was like more angry then because they treated it as a traffic case and he just got a slap on the hand and nothing happened. So then more anger set in because of that because I felt like he got away with murder. And I thought, whoa, he's going to be out there doing the same thing and then somebody else is going to get hurt, right? And so my brother's death has done nothing. So mind you, the anger just keeps getting worse and worse. Um, so, but like I said, I forgive and forget. And I used to watch Oprah. And sometimes on the Oprah show, she'd have some great story about somebody coming and, you know, they murdered their whole family and, and they forgave. And you hear these stories and they inspire you. And you're just like, yes, I want to forgive too. I want this exciting story. I could tell people I forgave the guy that killed my brother, you know. And so I just superficially, like, yeah, yeah, I forgive him, you know. Time goes by. I'm in school. Um, I have clinicals. It's, you know, when you're in nursing, you, you do the practicing part. And this section was the uh, mental health section. So we were in a psych ward in a mental health institute doing our, our um, training. And the people I'd work with, some of them were alcoholics and stuff, and I was fine. You know, you talk to them and you're fine. Well, then I, uh, we were sitting in one, one group one day, and before you go into group, you have to get, you have to get a report from the nurses before you. You have to get report from them, and then you go in. Well, we get report of this guy that had just come in the night before. And the guy that had come in, he, um, he had been in a drunk driving accident. Praise the Lord, he didn't hurt anybody else. Uh, he totaled his car. But his lawyer, trying to keep him out of prison, uh, told him to get admitted into the mental health facility. Okay. Um, so he gets put into the mental health facility to avoid prison. And we know this stuff coming in to help him. We know that, you know, the sneaky stuff he's doing. So mind you, this is in my head. So we're sitting in, in the group and we're talking and we're doing our thing. He walks in and he walks out. He walks in, he slammed the door, walk in, walk out, huff and puff and, you know, and finally the head um, counselor, she addresses him and she says, can we help you? You know, what can we do for you? I don't deserve to be in here. I haven't done anything wrong. I want to get out of here. I don't deserve to be in over and over and over. I sit there. I've read his charts, right? I know what he's done. So what do you think starts happening to me? Have I dealt with forgiveness? Mm -mm. All of a sudden, this anger just starts coming up in me again and just starts coming up. And I'm like, oh, no, oh, no. And every time I hear him, 
all I could see in front of me now was the guy that killed my brother. I said, oh, the guy that killed my brother must feel like him. I didn't do anything. I don't deserve this. I didn't. And I just was like, oh, I cannot believe this. And I start shaking. My, my lips starts to quiver. Tears start to well up in my eyes. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I got to get out of here. I'm no good for these other people that are sitting here watching me. I'm supposed to be helping them. I run out of the room. I go to another room, and I just start crying and crying and crying. And I'm like, oh, I can't believe this. I thought I had forgiven, and I didn't know where it all came from. So my, my nursing instructor and then the head counselor come in afterwards and they talk to me and they're like, what happened? What's going on? So I start crying and telling them the whole story thinking I was going to get pity. <laughs> and all I got was, you got to deal with this problem. If you want to work in this line of work, you got to deal with this problem. So relaying my grievance story to them did nothing except give me a reality check that if I want to work in this line of work, I got to deal with my problem. Well, I didn't even know I had a problem. So I go home and uh, I start crying to the Lord. Lord, help me. I don't, I, I have no clue how to deal with this. I didn't know I hadn't forgiven. I thought I forgave and I'm so angry and, and I guess it's true. I'm still mad at this guy. So what did I start to do? Remember what Chad said? The first thing you do is admit that you've been hurt, you've been wrong. And I started going, it's true. Our family's been hurt. You know, I lost a beautiful older brother. He was a husband, a, a son, a great friend to so many people, love, loving guy, outgoing. He could do anything. I was always the fearful one. And he was always the one like, go out and live, live life, have fun, you know. And so it was like all these things. I started like, yeah, it, it's sad. It's sad. It's not good. And so I let that all out to God, and I just told him everything. And then the next thing was, um, the other thing that I struggled with, with was during that time, I used to have these reoccurring dreams that um, it was all a mistake, and my brother wasn't dead. I'd have this during my dream. He's not dead. He's alive. And we'd see him, and the, and hug him in great union. Oh, it's a mistake. He's not dead. He's not dead. And I'd really believe it in my dreams that he was not dead. Over and over I would dream this. And then I'd wake up in the morning and, was that real? Was it not real? And then I'd think for a while, oh, it's not real. It's just a dream. And it would just be so crushing. I'd be like, oh, I can't believe this. Over and over this would happen to me. Or I'd have these reoccurring thoughts of of the accident. I wasn't there, but I had my own version of how it happened. And so um, he, you know, the way he died and everything, I'd play it over and over, and it would drive me nuts. And I had these, uh, I started to have fear of death. I thought, I'm next in line. I'm the next child. I'm going to be next. And all the superstitious thoughts about death, I'd think I was going to go to New York City on the anniversary of his death, I was flying out, and then I was going to come back in on his birthday. That's how close those two events are. And so I thought, oh, something's going to happen to me. It's the anniversary of his death and his birth. Just crazy thoughts constantly going through my head. And um, these things were just plaguing me. And so I started praying. And when I started thinking about, man, when I wake up in the morning, this feels awful. And I started thinking about the man that killed my brother. And I thought, 
How does it feel for him to wake up in the morning knowing that he killed somebody? It must not feel good. It must be awful. So I started to pray for him in my little way that I could. And as I prayed for him, and as I started thinking, you know the story of David and Uriah? I imagined when David and Uriah get to heaven, David has to come up to him and tell him what he did, right? And then he has to ask for forgiveness. And I thought, Lord, it would be so awesome if, if this man in heaven can come up to my brother and say, you know what, you have no clue who I am, but this is what happened. And my life turned around after that. And I started claiming that, that whole promise and situation of David's life. I started like, Lord, please do that in this man's life. Please change this man's life. Please, you know, don't let my brother's death go in vain. Sure, the, the justice system didn't work, but your system can. This man's life can be changed. And I started praying that, and guess what happened? That anger lifted off my shoulders. And now I can stand here. Sure, I get a little emotional, but nowhere near what I used to. And that's where the Lord can give us what? Emotional amnesia. You don't have to have that ugly feeling and all of that anger come in and overwhelm you and you feel sorry for yourself. The Lord gave me that. Well, guess what else the Lord gave me? Those thoughts of, of um, reoccurring over and over and over and death and being afraid. I was going to some net meetings at our local church. And guess who the speaker was on the net meetings? Elder Finley. Yes, you got it. <laughs> so Elder Finley was a speaker, and I told you I grew up in the church. And people were inviting me to come to the meeting. But like every, I shouldn't say every, but a lot of young people, ah, oh, I know it all. I've heard it all. I don't need to go. But I went to visit some friends who were living a worldly life. And when I came back, I thought, I've had enough of that life. I'm going to the meetings. So I went to the meetings. Praise the Lord. And one night in particular, um, I was sitting there and just feeling overwhelmed with these thoughts of death. And it was just really overwhelming to me. And I started to pray. And I was like, Lord, please help me. I can't take this anymore. Well, before the meeting started, they, um, they were playing some music. Now hear this song was an answer to my prayer. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all what? Fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Isn't that powerful? Like right there, as I am praying and asking the Lord to release this for me, this song comes in and I hear these words and I'm like, oh, that's just for me. And the Lord just lifted that burden off. And I wasn't thinking, I said, I don't care if I die tomorrow. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. All fear is gone. He holds the future. Who cares? Who cares if I go, right? Praise the Lord. Another thing my family did is we claimed the promise in Romans 8, 28. And it says that God will work all things together for good. This was an ugly situation uh, with the death of my brother. But we said, Lord, bring good out of it. I had friends that put down alcohol forever, never picked it up again. My life totally turned around. Um, one of the things that I, after my brother died, it was heavy on me because I started thinking about death. If I were to die tomorrow, whose life have I made a difference in? 
and I couldn't think of one person, and I grew up a Christian my whole life, who, who can I say, would say, I know Jesus because of Fadia. And I thought, nobody. Nobody can say that about me. Nobody can say, I know Jesus because of Fadia. And I thought, what a pathetic life. So I started praying, Lord, please change my life. I don't want to be like that. I want to be a real Christian. I want to live for you. I want to, ha- I ha- want to have people in heaven because of my influence, right? And so I started praying that, and the Lord totally turned that around for me by his grace and his grace alone that I can stand before you today. I cannot, you have no clue. Growing up in Chicago, I came from a whole other situation than you see here before you, completely different but only by the grace of God and his forgiving power. I just want to appeal to you all. Um, I know anger sets in. I know we do things to one another, and this is the world we live in. But we serve a risen Savior that's died for our sins and has forgiven us when we weren't worthy of it. And he wants to release us from the pain and suffering that a lack of forgiveness has this ugly grip on us. We deal with a lot of people with addictions and stuff, and guess what is at the core of each one? Not letting go of something that's happened to them. And so they grab onto these addictions to deal with their problems. Is there anybody here that wants to release that and ask, Lord, please help me with this thing that's in my mind right now. I release it to you. I give it to you. If you feel so, I ask you to stand up with me right now. And ask the Lord to release that lack of forgiveness in your life. Maybe it's a, been a person. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's been a loved one. You, have, you know what it is. And you know maybe you have an issue with God. God, why have you let these things happen to me in my life? Why, why this and why that? You have questions in your heart. I ask you, release it. Let, give it to God. Let it go. Don't hold on to it. It only destroys you. It only destroys you. And I can stand here today knowing that I have forgiven and I don't feel like I'm weak for it. I don't, I don't feel, and I, I hope by God's grace, I've never met the man that killed my brother, but I hope by God's grace I get to meet him someday in heaven and tell him that I prayed for him. It is so important. You know, our theme is The hour has come. And the hour has come for our earth to realize that this warfare is about good and evil. And we don't need to be on the enemy's side and hold on to stuff. We have given a free gift. Free gift of forgiveness. And there's no reason for us to hold on anymore. There's no reason for us to hold on. So I encourage you, go through these things. Don't do it superficially. I'll tell you that. Don't do it superficially. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Seek his face and ask him to give you a true heart of forgiveness. No matter how much people have hurt you. I could go on and on. I've been physically abused as well, sexually abused. And I could go on and tell you about those stories. And um, God has given me release from that as well. And I'll tell you one thing. The Lord has blessed me with a beautiful husband. If you've ever been sexually abused, you always feel dirty. That is one thing you, you feel a lot. 
you feel dirty and you feel like you've lost your innocence, like you're not an innocent person. You know what he calls me? His snowflake. To someone in here that knows what that feels like, you know that those are healing words. Healing words. To know that he looks at me like that. And that's only a gift from God. And those of you that know what it's like to be hurt by someone like that, I ask that you release it right now. Don't hold on to that pain. You were a child, maybe you were older, I don't know. But don't hold on to that pain that someone's done to you. Don't let it continue to ruin the rest of your life and shape your character. I used to be so afraid of stuff. Do you know what I used to do, you guys? I'd had a twitch. If I had thoughts, uh, flashback of, of those scenes of what the person, people would do to me, it was multiple, I'd have a twitch. I don't do that anymore. By the grace of God, I don't have a twitch anymore. I didn't like you to touch me. I didn't like you to come and give me hugs. My friends that know me here would know that I love to have hugs now. Amen? God can heal you if you release the lack of forgiveness. God can heal you of all of that. And I just want to extend that to each and every one of you here. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Jesus, that he's made a way out of our oppressiveness, Lord, out of the sin and the drudgery that we deal with day in and day out. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us the promises through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that he has come to give us life and life more abundantly. Lord, if I continued in the life I had in Chicago, oh, what a horrible thing. But I thank you so much for bringing me through all those things that I may share them today. And I pray by your grace that they would be a help to those here, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit would touch hearts and, and use these things to your glory and honor. Father, I lift up anyone here right now that is struggling, that is, is not wanting to let go, Lord, that is struggling and the pain is right there. Father, please help them to let go of that. Help them to trust you and, and to allow you to come in and bring your healing, healing spirit to come in and, and cleanse them, Lord. Please, Father, we pray. We want to see you face to face someday, Lord, and we don't want anything to come between you and us. We lift up all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you all. Um, I know forgiveness is a very touchy uh, subject. That's why we have it in our overcoming seminar. Um, but does anyone have any questions about that? And if you, if you don't want to raise it here, we can privately talk about it as well. But does anyone, like, something come up in your mind and think, well, what about this or what about that? So the question is, um, if someone is close to you and you have to see them all the time and they continue to hurt you, how do you deal with it?
Depending on what the situation is, um, for example, I know stories of where um, there's a bad marriage and, and the husband is continually like ill and, and towards the wife and just always mean to her and just terrible, terrible. And she'll totally commit it to the Lord. Like there's this one um, quote where Ellen White says that everything that happened to Jesus he looked at it as coming from God, that it had come from the hand of the Lord, that anything he looked at was like he dealt with it because it came from the hand. Like it, it went through God first, and then it came to him. So he knew, you know, it's okay. And so this woman took this verse. Someone encouraged her, and she took this verse, and she took it to heart. And when she started claiming it and started praying about it, the situation with her husband got worse. It absolutely got worse. And then she just continued to pray and work. And then finally her husband addressed her. He's like, what's going on? What's, what's, you know, why are you changed and this and that? And then she shared with him. And it totally turned their lives around. And then later on, some worse things happened. And then the Lord reminded her of that again. And in the end, uh, her husband was rebaptized. Her in-laws and all of them, they were just one, one to God. And in the end, in heaven, it'll all be worth it, right? But... And, and that's a beautiful story, and I encourage you, if it's some situation like that, but there are situations, like we met a young man um, in the States who was physically, sexually, verbally, every kind of abuse you could think of um, by his stepdad. And finally, his stepdad ended up murdering his other brother and went to prison and only got a few years because they just, it was terrible. And so when we were studying with this young man, he said, do I have to forgive him too? And it was so solemn. We just sat there, and all of us just started crying. We just all started crying together because we knew he had to, but it was such a hard situation. But we told him, you don't need to be around him. You don't have to continue. Like, if you have a child, you don't want your child around someone that abuses children. You don't want your child around someone that's going to do these things. But you can forgive him and, and release it and pray for him and ask the Lord to intervene. But you don't have to be around him where he's continually causing uh, pain for the family. So that, that would be one way um, of explaining it. Any other questions? All right, well, thank you so much for coming. And just to let you know, tomorrow morning we'll have, we'll have a seminar on creation and evolution. It's called A Moment or a Millennium, trying to give answers, a reason for the faith that you have so that you know and when you're, when you're in, you know, your biology class or whatever, that you, you can understand for yourself that you don't have to constantly be asking, maybe Adventists have never thought of that question. Because sometimes, you know, you, you go to school and you don't know the answer. You don't, you don't know, uh, you know, what about Darwin's finches or whatever. You don't know the answer. And so you think the poor Adventists are just ignorant about all this stuff, right? But it's not true. We've had to deal with these issues. So, uh, you know, but the, uh, my point is not to answer every objection. In, in two hours, we can't do that. But our purpose is to give you a framework for yourself so that you can see through the principles and the the that you can have an answer for yourself in your own mind so that you don't have to be so confused every time you run into these things. So just to let you know, and 
Thank you so much for coming. Just to let you know, we have some of the Overcoming seminars, the, the entire series. It's like seven messages. We've just given you some snippets. That's why it's kind of been, I don't know, a little, it hasn't been as smooth as normal. But if somebody really has some things they're trying to overcome and you would like to know more, uh, we have some over here. Yes, in the back. Yes. Okay, re, re, um, quick answer. Basically, to, to sum up what I, what I think I understood, you know, I, someone says, well, I have friends, I have people who are maybe into the New Age, or they're into, you know, uh, Buddhism or Hinduism, or, or maybe they're just into, you know, yoga, or trying to clear up their pain through, you know, meditation and so forth, and what do we have that's better than what they have? Well, the reality is, is in, I, I don't know if you were in the first, did, were you in the first seminar? Okay. In the first seminar, one of the things we talked about, I believe it was in the first seminar, was that when they've, they've done tests on people who do Eastern meditation, like yoga, and you sit and you, once again, what you do is you may just think about, and I said it before and it's true, your belly button, your belly button, your belly button, your belly button. You can actually find peace in your life by thinking about your belly button. Now, then you say, well, prayer also makes us feel peace. But what they've actually done through doing tests on people is they've discovered you find peace when you think about nothing. And you find peace when you pray. But what they discovered is the people who think about their belly button or nothing end up going back into stress. The stress comes back. Why? Because yes, you don't have stress when you think about nothing. But then reality sets back in. But when you go to God, you're actually dealing with the issue. And he is not only, now you're not only just denying the issue exists, you're bringing the issue to, with, to God, he's helping you deal with it, and then you find a peace that they've actually found, that peace lasts. So there is a distinction between the two, that yes, we can both find a temporary peace with our meditation practices, but there is one way that is actually lasting, and not only that, God will actually give us the help. It's not only, yes, you can do this, but I don't think about it ever again, but yes, I can think about it again and have peace at the same time. God can actually change me from the inside by his power. God has something divine. Now, not everybody, I wouldn't necessarily bring that up in the beginning. I would rather study some other issues with somebody then go right into that. It might be kind of offensive, like, you're saying science proves your religion's better than mine. Um, yeah, maybe you could share some of those things. I wouldn't. I would rather share some other issues. But that's something for me that just gives a little more testimony to the fact that, yes, we can both find peace, whether we deny reality or whether we actually talk to God. But God's method of peace is lasting peace. So, anybody else? All right. Thank you guys so much for coming. If you have any questions or you'd like to talk, we'll be here. Uh, bless you all. Stay in God's word. Be reading the Bible. Don't, don't let a day go without it. It's, it's life-changing. So God bless. This message was recorded through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe 
at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. GYC a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.